0: Hey, Junior here. Thanks for hitting play. You know what would be terrifying? Angering God. The most terrifying thing ever. Ang with. We're talking about that. So to really get to know someone, you have to, you have to learn what ticks them off. Like for, so like for me to, to really know Nicole, my wife, uh, for us to have a good relationship, I have to learn what gets under her skin so that I don't do those things. And in our, man, we're going to be married 12 years this summer. In our 12 years, I've learned a lot. Uh, for an example, I've learned that there's a right way and a wrong way to load a dishwasher. No idea. I just thought if it fits, it fits. But no, there's a science to it. And if we are to live as civilized people, we must load the dishes this way. Uh, I've learned that there's a right and a wrong way to fold towels. Did you know the right way to fold towels? You have to fold it in half, and then you have to do this like tricky trifold thing with your chin. Um, and if you don't do that, I mean, you, you can't just fold it in half like a barbarian. You know, you have to like the trifold is very, very important. Let's see what else have I learned? Um, food in bed is like a cardinal sin. I didn't know that. Like two great things that I love: bed and food. Like now we're talking, but no, can't do that. Nighttime tea is okay if. You don't sip loudly. And so I'm, just, I'm learning you know, what she likes and what she doesn't like, and it's helping our marriage. And it's the same thing with her, right? She, she's learning what gets under my skin. Like, for example, Nicole used to do the craziest thing. She'd be super kind, and this is very thoughtful of her. She'd be super kind. She knew I had, like, a long week of work. You know, I'd come back on, like, Thursday afternoon, and she would mow the lawn for me. Like, super kind, super thoughtful for her. But she would mow in circles, she would start on the perimeter and then just keep spiraling all the way to the middle. And she thinks that's okay. It's like, no, the guys in the neighborhood are going to think I'm an idiot. Like, that, that is a gross breaking of guy code. You don't mow in circles. So she's learning me. Like lighting, I'm, I'm a, lighting is a big deal to me. I'm a big fan of like mood lighting, ambient lighting. You know, I dim the lights in the evening, accent lighting. It's like, okay, we're landing the plane at the end of the day. Let's kind of dim things down. It kind of calms the children down. It's relaxing. She'll walk in and just bam, hit the high beams on. Be like, babe, you're confusing the uh, planes landing at, at O'Hare. Like, also the kids are jumping off the walls now. You totally harsh term. So we're learning each other. That's really any relationship that you're in. You just kind of understand what gets under their skin, and they understand what gets under your skin, and and you don't do those things, and it strengthens the relationship. Same is true with your relationship with Jesus. It's kind of a weird thing. We talk about having this relationship with Jesus, and I hear a lot of times, like, well, what does that even, like, mean? What does that look like? Well, part of that is understanding what Jesus likes, and also, just as important, understanding what he doesn't like, what gets under his skin, what ticks Jesus off. You might be thinking, what? Jesus ticked off? That's not the adorable sheep-cuddling Jesus that I know. Oh, you just wait. Mark chapter 11 is where we're at this morning. Mark chapter 11, really curious to grab a Bible. we got Bibles in the chairs. It's page 847 in those Bibles. We also have the Bridge app. And on the Bridge app, um, you can take notes, have the Bible there, our uh, devotions, our reading plan, Bridge reading plan is all there. So if you don't have that app, go ahead and download it. But Mark chapter 11 is where we're going to be. Let me pray and we'll... Jump right into this. God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for this gathering right now. Your people gathering together to hear from Dad. I mean, what what an important time. Probably the most important time of our week is, is right here, gathering together, brothers and sisters, and hearing from you. So, God, would you remind us of the weight of that, the privilege of that, the honor of that, that we get to hear from you. And we thank you for your word. We believe it is true. We receive what it says. In the name of Jesus, please open our hearts, please bring situations to mind, and engage us. Please speak to us, we are listening, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we enter into Mark chapter 11, the, the main thoroughfare in Jerusalem begins to crowd. Ladies hauling their food from the marketplace ask each other, like, what's going on? What, what is this? Why, why? And why does everybody have palm branches? Did we not get a memo here? And people in the crowd are asking each other, are, are you sure he's coming this way? Is he coming this way? I think I saw him coming this way. And they're saying, who, who? Who's coming this way? And through the shadows of the waving branches, they, kept, they catch a, a glimpse that almost makes them drop their groceries. Because there he is. He sits on a donkey, a symbol of peace. See, kings who rode into towns or cities on horses traditionally symbolized war. Because with horses, it's speed, it's strength, it's power. But traditionally kings who rode into cities on donkeys symbolized peace. A donkey is no threat. I mean peace. The old prophet Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would enter on a donkey. And here he is. It's so electric that even the pavement stones want to cry out. There's an energy that just hangs in the air. There's this hope. Though the commotion surrounds him, Jesus is somewhat reflective as he sits. Oh, he smiles and he nods and he he makes eye contact with Everybody who came out to see him, but he knows all of this is temporary. See, it's just a matter of time. These palm branches that are being waved will soon be wilted and brown. The coat lined street will soon be a trail of blood. See, at this point, it's just a matter of time. And Jesus is about to turn things up. We jump in verse 11. Mark writes, And he, meaning Jesus, entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So right off the bat, we see something got under Jesus' skin. Now, we don't know what it is yet, but something just ticked him off. He's not going to lose it, though. He's not going to fly off the handle. He's going to be very, very intentional. And so he decides in this moment that he's going to do something, but he's not going to do it right now. It's late, so he leaves the city heads to a suburb of Jerusalem called Bethany. This is where Lazarus and his sisters are, stays with them, verse 12. And the following day, when they came from Bethany, Jesus, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, Jesus went to see if he could find anything on it. So on the way into town, they're stopping for breakfast. Now this is odd, because uh, it's not fig season. This is the week of Passover, so this is... Late March, maybe April. Figs won't, be in leaf. figs won't be popping up until June at the earliest. But verse 13, it says the fig tree is in leaf. So this is odd. Looks like it should have figs under it. Jesus is hungry, so he goes to check it out, get some figs. End of verse 13, nothing is there. So look at verse 14. It says, and he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now that seems like an overreaction, doesn't it? You know, this is the only destructive miracle of Jesus in Scripture? Every other miracle of Jesus brings life or healing or restoration. This little miracle is the only destructive miracle because later on, we're going to pass by this fig tree again and it'll be withered. Destructive miracle. What's up with that? What's up with you, Jesus? Like, you're not going much sleep last night? Like are you hangry? I mean, this is kind of when you expect like a Snickers commercial, right? You know, Jesus, you're not yourself. Eat a Snickers. But it's actually a teaching moment That comes later. So Mark continues, verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling uh, pigeons. Verse 16. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Okay, so Jesus, first off, you curse a fig tree. That's weird. Now this. What's going on? I mean, this this is wild. Maybe you've heard this story before, but just picture this scene. It's Passover week at the temple. The courtyard of the temple is jam-packed. There's this electric energy from yesterday that still hangs in the air. But that energy is about to shift. Those who wait in line to get into the temple courtyard, they're about to see a show. See, first the sound of yelling echoes off the limestone walls. Thick wooden tables thud on the pavement stones. A crack of a whip in the air. Jesus went out and made a whip. How cool is that? He made his own weapon. A crack of a whip in the air. One merchant, hands full of goods and money, scurries through the crowd and out the exit. And a hush falls over the courtyard. It has never been this quiet up here, even on a low attended day. And there stands the man. Oh, he rode into town on a donkey yesterday, symbolizing peace. Yet there he stands with a whip and a clenched jaw. The voice that calms storms, the voice that raised the dead, is now striking terror the temple courts. What is going on? Why would he do this? And the common answer, like the Christian answer, is just kind of like, well, you know, there's an exchange of goods going on in the temple and Jesus didn't like that. Is that it? It can't be it, can it? When you think about it, when Jesus was a week old, Eight, nine days old, his parents took him to the temple to sacrifice. It's like a baby dedication. Mary and Joseph took them in for a baby dedication. Uh, They sacrificed doves. Chances are they bought those doves in the temple because they came from Bethlehem. They were from Nazareth. They didn't have time to go back to Nazareth. They didn't go home first. So they probably bought at the temple. Would that have been wrong? Or think about it today. We sell um, bridge apparel in the lobby or books. Some of you probably bought coffee just so that you could stay awake while I preach. You know, the, the bridge kids check-in, they sell children's Bible. What, like, would Jesus, if he were here today, would he flip the bridge kids check-in? So we think, like, oh, of course not, but what's the difference then? See, there's something happening here far deeper than the typical interpretation of this story. But to go deeper and get that, we have to understand the temple. So I want to take you to the temple, walk around, and get a feel for what's going on. Here's a picture Of the first century model of the temple. According to scripture, according to archaeology, according to secular historians like Josephus, uh, this is what it would have looked like. Now this temple is not around today. It was destroyed 35 years after Jesus. Today, the Dome of the Rock sits where the temple was. The Dome of the Rock is an Islamic shrine uh, with a mosque on the grounds. Uh, So when you see pictures of Jerusalem, for example, like this dome always kind of sticks out because it's like a a golden dome. Um, That's where the temple was. Now, a good chunk of the courtyard around it is original. So a lot of these stones, I've been up here before, a lot of these stones uh, would have been stones that Jesus would have walked on and and, and preached on. Um, So it looks like this today, but it would have looked like this during this time. The structure right here is called the holy place. Inside the holy place is something called the holy of holies. Maybe you've heard of this before. It's in, uh, it's described in the Old Testament. This is where the holy of holies is where God's presence dwelt. There was this curtain that you couldn't only the high priest could go behind. That's where God's presence dwelt. Not that God was limited to that spot, but this is where He met with His people inside. That holy of holies. This is why when Jesus died on the died on the cross, the veil on that curtain was torn, no longer separating God from his people. This is why we don't need to go to a priest to go to God, because Jesus is our high priest. We go through Jesus to talk to the Father. So that's all right inside here. Right outside of the holy place is the the men, the court of the men. This is where Jewish men would come and, and worship, and then the women in this courtyard right here. Now you might be looking at that going, Hold on, Junior, isn't that discriminatory? I won't argue that, but God set it up, and he designed the different sexes, so I guess he can just do what he wants. I will say, though, that throughout human history, it's always been God's people that have been pro-woman. It's just true. Uh, Maybe not what we hear in mainstream media, but that is true. Women in Israel had far, far, far better standing, more rights, more respect, more voice than any other society or or culture in history. Like It it wasn't even close, Uh, and that's because God treasures women. But for his reasons, he set up the temple this way. Guys with guys, girls with girls. Maybe to eliminate distraction or pressure or competition. Maybe he was just saving the women from having to smell the guys in, in the temple courtyard. Who knows? I will say, though, that this is in the court of the men is where the sacrifices took place. So God had asked the men, if you lead your family... You are responsible for your family, so you will make the sacrifices. So the men would go into the court of men to make the sacrifice for the family because they are responsible spiritually for the family, and the women, um, sometimes the children, though they would take the children sometimes, the women could then watch from the court of the women. So, holy place, court of men, court of women, we're getting somewhere with this, this all really matters to the story. Then outside of this area was a large area, right over on both sides, like we have a better picture of it. This is the court of the Gentiles. This is where non-Jewish people could come, learn about Yahweh, and be introduced to the God of Israel. The biggest court by far. And for a reason. God so badly wants people of all nations and tribes and tongues to know him. Now, yes, Jewish people are his chosen people, but God desires all nations. So God made the biggest courtyard to be for outsiders to come in and join. And this right here is the root of Jesus' anger. Because where do you think the merchants set up their shops? In the court of the Gentiles. The big area that's designed to bring in outsiders is being blocked by the merchants. This is why Jesus says in, in verse 17, he says, Is it not he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer? Look at that. For all nations. For all That's key. For all nations. The shops were blocking the newcomers from coming in. God wants to bring the newcomers in. But there's another level to his anger, and he continues on in verse 17, but you have made it a den of thieves, a den of robbers. So not only are they blocking seekers from coming in and seeing and understanding the God of Israel, huge problem, But they're price gouging as they do it. Here's what's going on with that. So, for centuries, Jewish people would pilgrimage to Jerusalem at least annually to make a sacrifice. Jesus' family would have done this. Jesus grew up. Once a year, we go to Jerusalem to make a sacrifice. A lot of these pilgrims would travel from far, far away. And traveling during this time is dangerous. There's a real risk of being robbed. You don't want to be carting around like your sacrifice with you because you, then you're just a sitting duck. There's also difficult roads that you have to travel. So you want to travel with as little as possible. You don't want to cart animals with you. So what you would do was you would stop near Jerusalem or at the temple and you would get, just buy a lamb there. Pretty good idea. The problem is, is this, there's a lot of money to be made in that. This grew into a big enterprise. Some serious money to be made. So there was racketeering, there was price, jacking up the prices. The priests were actually getting a kickback from from raising the prices. Think about it like, um, you ever go to like a sporting event or or, or an airport and um, you buy a 50 cent hot dog for 10 bucks? You know what I'm talking about? Why would they do that? Because they can you can't bring food in with you, so they got you. Same type of thing was happening here in the temple, so they're blocking outsiders from being able to come in and worship, and they're price gouging as they do it. But the day is not done. Verse eighteen: The chief priests and the scribes heard it, and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Verse nineteen: And when evening came, they went out of the city. Just imagine evening time that day in Jerusalem. Passover approaching. You know the limestone buildings glow orange, reflecting the sunset below the mountain, the cool evening spring breeze blows through the emptying streets. Families are, you know, lighting their lamps and preparing dinner, and there's just one topic of conversation around the dinner table that night. What happened up at the temple? What was that all about? Story continues, verse twenty. It says, and they passed by, so it's the next day, Jesus and his disciples passed by in the morning and they saw that fig tree withered to its roots. Okay, so again, what's that, what was that about? So when we understand the temple, we understand Jesus' anger. We think, okay, that makes sense why Jesus is angry. But what about this, like, fig tree? Fig tree didn't harm anybody. What is that about? And his disciples ask him, if you look at verses 22 to 25, Jesus doesn't really explain it. They're like, hey, what's up with the fig tree? And he's like, oh, you guys think the fig tree is crazy? You could move mountains. Okay, well, that's cool, Jesus, but, like, what about the poor dead fig tree? And it actually aligns with what happened in the temple, See, throughout the Old Testament, Israel is described often as God's vineyard. So like uh, in Judges, in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, they all record God referencing Israel as his vineyard. And since Adam and Eve, God's people knew that the first fruits belong to God. Every Jewish person, especially agrarian Jewish person, knew, hey, our first fruits. When we harvest our first fruits, they go to God. This is what we teach today, right? We as followers, we give of our first fruits. We call that a tithe, 10%. This is why my wife and I, when we sit down to pay bills, the first thing we do is is we give. We just, first fruits go to God. So this is what we practice today. um, Because we are God's vineyard, and so our first fruits go to the owner. Here we see God in flesh has come to Jerusalem. So the owner of the vineyard, Israel is the vineyard. The owner has arrived. The time for the harvest has come. God is here. Salvation has come. The prophets have been warning for hundreds of years. The owner's coming. The owner's coming. And now the owner of the vineyard is in the building. Here he is. It's Passover. Big celebration. Jesus is riding a donkey. The owner is in the house. But the religious leaders have rejected him. And the court of the Gentiles is blocked. So Jerusalem looks ready. Big celebration. Passover. The owner's here. Donkey. But it's not ready. Jerusalem is like the fig tree. The fig tree leaves are full. It looks ready. There should be fruit. But there's no fruit. And that gives us a peek Into what angers Jesus? These are in your notes. What angers Jesus? Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Jesus walks up to the fig tree. It's just like Jerusalem at the time. Has the appearance of being alive and well. But there's no fruit. It's a hypocritical tree. And so he judges it and it withers away. In the same way, Jesus walks up to you. And he walks up to me. And if there's no fruit, he does the same. He judges us and we wither away. And I know that sounds really harsh. But this is, this is the idea that Jesus is getting at. In fact, this is littered throughout the Gospels. Who does Jesus struggle with the most in the Gospels? The religious leaders. Why? Because of their hypocrisy. Hypocrisy gets under the skin of Jesus. To which we think, and it was a lot of times we cheer Jesus on, you know, when he's like fighting the Pharisees. like, yeah, get those hypocrites. But it's then we need to stop and consider, would he have to come after me, though? So here's what I want to do. We did this a couple weeks ago. I wanted it again. We're going to take a little litmus test and see how much of a hypocrite you are. I know this is like the worst, but we're going to do it. Signs of a hypocrite, and these come from Jesus himself. Signs of a hypocrite. First off, you focus on the external over the internal. Hypocrites evaluate themselves and others based on the external. That's why Jesus said to a bunch of hypocrites, he said, You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. You look the part... You look good in church. Social media looks fantastic. Circle of friends are pretty. But inside, there's just anger, bitterness, greed, self-righteousness, envy, all sorts of ugly. Second sign of hypocrisy is other people's sin bothers you more than your own. The other night, uh, Nicole and the girls and I sat down for dinner. And we, we prayed for dinner. And my youngest, Reese, after I said amen, Reese says, Dad, Nora opened her eyes during prayer. Interesting. How did you know? It's like, well, I opened my eyes, but I had to make sure everybody else was closing theirs. Like, what a little rule-obsessed Karen. Like, hypocrite. Where does that little girl get that from? From her daddy. The other night, I, I, was, I was lecturing the girls about putting their shoes away nicely when you come inside. Like, don't walk in the door and just take off your shoes. Like, put them where they go on the shelf nicely. Like, it's not that hard, ladies. Put the shoes away. Guess whose shoes were right in front of the door? Mine. Other people's sin bothers me. Other people's laziness, oh, it gets under my skin. Other people's lack of care bothers me. Other people's attitudes angers me. Other people's sin, I hate it. My own, well, oh, okay, come on. Not that big of a deal. Like, I'm, I, I mean well, okay. Oh, I'm a hypocrite. And I bet I'm not the only one here. Jesus said this. He says, a bunch of hypocrites. He says, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own? See, sin should bother us. Sin should bother us in general. When we see sin, it should bother us. But our own sin should be the most glaring. Our own sin should bother us the most. Third sign of a hypocrite is you have misplaced priorities. What does that mean? Well, think about what's going on here in the temple. The temple leaders are such critics of Jesus, yet... People are struggling to worship based on their rules. So they're all about the rules. Meanwhile, people are struggling to worship. Their priorities are completely off. And we're guilty of this. A few years ago, a guy came to church to visit church. Cool guy. He's in his 30s. Doesn't go to church. His mom did. His mom came here, and she finally got him to visit church. <laughs> it's always funny. When people razz me about my appearance, like, I get it, you know, people, but people razz me about my appearance, it's fine, totally get it, but the the same people who razz me about the way I look, um, when their unbelieving friend or their unbelieving child come, uh, who do they want to introduce them to? The guy with the appearance that they hate, it's just kind of funny how that works, but anyways, so this lady brought her son to me, and and he said to me, he's like, man, I I love your tattoos, I I want one so bad, but like my mom, it it really let her down, and you know, if I got a tattoo, talk to him more, and uh, come to find out, and it's He's not a believer, so I'm not, like, judging him, but come to find out, um, you know, he's living with his, his girlfriend. He's sleeping with his girlfriend. He, he ha- hasn't been in church in decades. And so just sat there thinking, like, okay, but why was it that his mom's influence was stronger about tattoos versus his lifestyle? Why was that communicated to him like that? Misplaced priorities here, caring about the wrong things. See, a focus on rules, how we come across our image not the heart. And I'm guilty of that. Like, I hate it when I'm more strict with my kids around other people than I am behind closed doors. Like, my hypocrisy wants my kids to act better around others than at home because of how it makes me look misplaced priorities. See, hypocrites pla- place a high priority on traditions, image, how are we coming across, instead of the heart. So, looking at these, how'd you do? Not very good, huh? Bunch of wretched hypocrites in here. You disgust me. (laughs) All joking aside, we really should take our hypocrisy seriously. I mean, we should see it in ourselves. We should be quick to see it, uh, hate it, and and kill it. Because hypocrisy angers Jesus, and hypocrisy kills you. Second thing that gets under Jesus' skin, so it's hypocrisy. And the second thing is devaluing of corporate worship. All throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament, there is this enormous, this enormous value placed on corporate worship. God designed you for worship, for corporate worship. And I am not against online church. I get it for those who can't come to church, but this is why I'm against this huge push for online church. No, you were created to physically get with other, with other people, God's people, and worship shoulder to shoulder. But there's always going to be this pull to devalue that pull away from corporate worship so let's take another litmus test and just see how we're doing when it comes to our own valuing of corporate worship uh, the first symptom that we're devaluing corporate worship is attendance isn't priority obvious point but attendance isn't priority I, you know it's one of those things where i'll come when i can a lot of things get in the way though you know long weekend work thing you know family gathering sports late night i get it i've, I've tried those excuses but, but think about it this way. I was telling my buddy this. He, he had skipped church uh, for a few weeks, a couple weeks ago, and so I kind of got on. Probably really sucks to be my friend. But I had, <laughs> I had said to him, I said, Man, Jesus left heaven to hang on a cross and choke on his own blood. Why are we struggling to do something he's asked us to do, and that is just go to church and gather and worship? Why, why is that a struggle? I know there's a million reasons not to especially with watching service online, but there should be one reason that trumps all those reasons not to attend. There's one reason to go to church. Jesus asked us to go. And we follow Jesus, so we do what he said. And if we want a shot at our kids adopting our values and, and, and love for Jesus Christ, we need, they need to see church as a priority in us, this constant connection to the local church. If it's second priority to us, it'll be third or fourth to our kids. Grandkids probably won't even go at all. I love what uh, Kevin DeYoung it said It's something like, um, the man who doesn't go to church, tries to worship Jesus without the church, shoots himself in the foot, his kids in the leg, and his grandkids in the heart. This really matters. It matters to Jesus. It should matter to us. And husbands, it is on us to lead out when it comes to that. When the weekend comes around, the question should never be, are we going to church? That's never the question. The question should be, which service are we going to? Because that's just who we are. We're just a family that goes to church. It's just too big of a deal. Another symptom that we devalue corporate worship is you lack excitement. You lack excitement. It's a big sign that we've devalued churches. There's just no excitement. Now, I'm not saying you need to, like, go buy a bunch of bridge merch and, like, jump around the auditorium during worship. I'm not saying that. Like, me, I'm not an excitable kind of guy. I'm I'm very chill, very even-keeled. But still, there should be this excitement in me and in you and the sense of, like, healthy pride about the body of Christ. There should be this excitement to, to serve and, and make a difference. And I get it. Listen, I get it. Serving can be a total drag sometimes and inconvenient. Totally get that. I felt that this morning. I um My family's up in Wisconsin right now. I was up there uh, yesterday, and I left Wisconsin before 5 a.m. this morning to, to come here um, to preach. And and uh, the whole drive here, I was like, man, I just want to sleep. And, and, and my family is having a reunion up in Wisconsin at a supper club this afternoon, which is like, Wisconsin Supper Clubs are the best. That's like my scene. So I'm just like, man, I wish I could sleep longer and go to that. But there's this little voice. I'm so glad that little voice spoke up in my head. I just was like, no, but what we're doing matters. Getting together with believers, getting into God's word, worshiping together, doing church really matters. And it's really easy, and I've done this, it's really easy to lose that voice. See, we're pushing, we're serving. Overall, there should be this sense of, like, we're doing something here. But something bigger than our careers. We're impacting eternity. And the big excuse today, and I hear this all the time, you know, well, the church is broken. The church is frustrating. The church has its problems. It's like, okay, Sherlock, like, that's nothing new. We still do church, though. You think about Jesus. Jesus loved the temple. Jesus loved synagogues. Just like the church, they were broken, like the, the leaders of those plotted and killed Jesus. But nonetheless, Jesus loved and was excited to attend and be part of them. And when we aren't, it's a sign that maybe, we've, maybe we don't value corporate worship as much as we were created to value it. Third thing that Jesus hates is uh, club mentality. Club mentality. It's one of the greatest temptations for people, you know, even God's people. And we see it here in the text, according to of the Gentiles is blocked. Large populations having a hard time coming in and learning and experiencing the God of Israel in this community. And we can look at that and go, yeah, cool, like, Jesus, I'm with Jesus. Like, flip those tables. That's awesome. But that's our own hypocrisy speaking because we struggle. Again, we struggle with the same thing. So another litmus test. I know, I kind of feel like an angry preacher today, and I hope I'm not coming across that way at all, um, that this is all coming from Jesus. So another litmus test. Yeah, this one's going to hurt, but I'm with you, okay? We can all hurt together on this one, all right? Signs that we have a club mentality. Uh, number one, this is, it's a hyper-focus on friends. Hyper-focus on friends. Now, friends are good. We need friends. We should have friends. We are friends. That's great. But here's what's ha- what happens, and this, is, this has been true for thousands of years, so we're not the only ones. We can get so locked in on our posse, on our people, on our group, on our friends, that we become blinded to the droves of people that are on their way to hell. Jesus' commission to us was go make disciples, not go make friends. You can go do that on your own. Go make disciples. And we often unintentionally surrender the mission of God to enjoy our friends. We forget about the court of the Gentiles that Jesus opened back up. And I think how this happens, at least this is true for me. Um, Some of us struggle with the club mentality more because we had struggled to find friends in the past. I did. I mean, man, growing up, I felt like an outsider. Middle school was rough. High school, I was just, I was a loner. I I had this craving for good friends. And and a lot of people have uh, are like that. And you know, then they show up to church and maybe it's like a small group or something, or Bible study, and you meet these people, like, man, these are like good people. These are the people that I've been longing to have as friends. And that craving you had is suddenly met, and it's awesome. And there's nothing wrong with it. It's it's actually quite beautiful. But because it was such a felt need before, because it was such a strong craving that you had for so long, what can happen is then we easily hold on to them way too tight. I don't want to let this go. And you look for them in the lobby, which is natural. You look for them at at events, and again, that's natural. But after a while, what happens is you start to forget about the others coming in. Others who had that longing that you had. Others need groups and others need friends and others need an open community feel, but we fear that we're going to lose what we, what we love so much that we can unintentionally close the court of the Gentiles. This is how a lot of churches, and, and I think this is a pandemic among churches today, this is how a lot of churches turn into clubs. It's really hard for outsiders to come in and like, break into the community because everybody already has their own relationships and it's really hard to, to break into that. And that's what's happening here. And so Jesus comes in, and he just breaks it all up. We're going to open up the court of the Gentiles so that outsiders can come in. Uh, the second sign that we have a club mentality is an unnecessary barriers and gatherings. Uh, a little confusing, so let me explain what this means. So J- Jesus walks into the temple, and there's all these barriers to experience God, right? All these merchant tables that are set up in the court of the Gentiles, sales going on, business deals, barriers everywhere. So new people come in, and they go, well, this isn't a place to worship. This is, this is basically, you know, I can't, I can't get in. And we do this, just in a different way. I'm no church critic. Uh, They're a dime a dozen. They're everywhere. However, let me just take some time right now to explain why the bridge does some things differently. Not because we're better than everybody else. We just do things differently, and it's actually because of of this right here. Sometimes you can walk into a church, a good-meaning church, and and automatically feel like you don't belong. You ever felt like that? You go visit a church, like, yeah, okay, this is not my scene. Like, everyone's dressed up, and I'm not dressed up. Or everyone's using Christianese lingo, which kind of cracks me up. Christianese lingo. You know what I'm talking about? Christianese lingo, like joy in the journey. I don't know what that means. Or, and God's people said. What? What, what do God's people say? I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Or the worst, the worst is, uh, we just need to love on each other. Uh, uh, no, we're not going to, you know, no thanks. Uh, or I've heard traveling mercies. No idea what that means. Uh, we, we say fellowship. Can't call it hanging out. No, it's it's uh, It's fellowship. Meanwhile, outsiders looking at us going, "We have no idea what you guys are talking about." And please don't love on us. (laughs) And while the intentions are are fine, maybe even good, that can all—all that lingo can be a barrier for outsiders coming in because they just think those guys are just weird. They love on each other and traveling mercies, and you know. So we don't want to. In fact, we do a lot of training with our staff, and we're not going to talk that way. We're going to talk normal. Okay, this is why. Uh, People on stage, we don't dress formal for church. Now, yeah, we get flack for that, and that's fine. We see the comments on the Connect cards, and we throw those away. We just, (laughs) we're not going to dress up. We want to be normal. That way, an outsider comes in, and they don't go, oh, shoot, like, these aren't my people. Like, they're all formal. I shouldn't be here. This is why we place a really big emphasis around here on our hospitality teams, like our, our greeters and our parking lot people and our, and our ushers, because we realize some of you, if the first time you showed up for church, you couldn't get out of your car. It was just scary. But to have somebody out in the parking lot smiling is like, all right, that guy's just removing that barrier. I can come in. You know, most of us have been to churches where you, get, you walk in, and again, they're good in churches. I'm not being critical of them, but you walk in. You're not sure where to go. You know, I've been there. You know, go to church, like I. I don't know where to go, uh, feel weird. Everyone's dressed up, and I look like, you know, well, me. And, and I'm a pastor, and I feel like I don't belong in the church. Can't imagine what my, my neighbor who I want to bring to church, what he would feel like. See, we want to remove all of those unnecessary barriers to the gospel. We don't want to turn people away before they get to the gospel. Now, the gospel will turn people off. The gospel will offend them, because the gospel can be offensive. But it's our job to remove all of those barriers, those, those tables, To bring them to the gospel. Now that doesn't mean we filter truth. We don't filter truth. We don't water down God's word. But we do things with the court of the Gentiles in mind. Because that's what Jesus cared about. And that's who Jesus opened the courts back up for. Again, I know that goes against like Christian culture and Christianese and churchy church clubs. But my goodness, we'll flip those tables each time. See, Jesus was very intentional here. Big demonstration. Big message. Hypocrisy is not to be tolerated. Corporate worship, top priority. And there's just there's no room for club mentality in the kingdom of God. Again, I know I, part of me dread this message because it's like, I just feel like so negative and like feel like an angry preacher up here. And I, I don't mean to be at all. I, I really don't. But we just have to I have to preach this in the text here. I mean, this is what made Jesus angry. At the same time, it, it matters. Jesus' anger points to what he loves. So it ha- often happens when we're angry. It often points to something that we love that we're protecting. Jesus's anger here points to something that he loves that he's protecting. And you know what he loves? You know what Jesus is protecting? In this text, you know what he's protecting? This. Jesus loves this, the gathering of God's people for worship. He loves that. He cherishes this right here, and he hates anything that takes away from this right here. Jesus says our hypocrisy will ruin this. Our hypocrisy will darken this. Hypocrisy will turn people off from coming in here. And when we operate like, man, we can kind of take or leave the gathering of God's people, when we come inconsistently, it hurts this. And cliques, club mentality, will kill this. Jesus is angry at those because he loves this. He loves seeing us be real. He loves seeing us make sacrifices to get together. And he loves seeing us bring in outsiders. That is the heart of Jesus Christ. And that should be our heart as well. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, would you give it a share? It goes a long way. Also, don't forget to subscribe if you haven't yet. Hey, God has something for you today. Go after it blessings.